We are continuing our summer series on the Psalms, um, and this morning we are going to be looking at Psalm 8, so I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles to turn to Psalm 8. One of life's big questions is, who am I? This is a question that we all have to wrestle with. And really the heart of the question is, do I matter? And we struggle with this at times. Am I making a difference? Does anyone truly know me, or does anyone truly care about me? Do you ever struggle with questions like that? Well, Psalm 8 is going to provide us with a great, glorious answer to those questions, and will hopefully give us all great hope. So please stand as I read this for us. Remembering this is God's inspired word. It was given to us in love, and it is absolutely true. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the privilege to come and to read and to study your word this morning. We thank you for this psalm that reminds us of your glory and of your majesty, reminds us that you are our great God, but also reminds us of what our place is within your created world. And Lord, I pray that we would be greatly encouraged this morning by your word, and I pray that we might encounter the glory of Jesus today. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So as Essen has said the last couple of weeks, we're doing this series on the Psalms, and we're going to be looking at selected Psalms that represent different genres that are found throughout the Psalms. And last week, Essen taught through a Psalm of Praise, and this week we're going to be looking at another Psalm of Praise. Psalm 8 is a Psalm of Praise, especially as focused upon the greatness of God, upon His glory and His majesty. But there's something else that we find in the Psalm as well, and that is it also talks about what our place is. What is man's place? within God's universe? What is man's place within the created world? And so the psalm seeks to answer two great questions. The first question is, who is God? And the second question is, who is man? These are questions, these are foundational, fundamental questions that every religion, philosophy, worldview needs to answer. Probably the most common worldview today, at least the way most people would answer this question in, in our society, would be this, that, that God, they would say that there is no God. And how would they answer the question about who is man? They would say man is just another link in the evolutionary chain. Even within the universal church, you know, the, probably the most common answer you'd hear in, in, in most churches in our land would be that God is a distant, disinterested God who doesn't really interfere in our lives except for on extreme circumstances, extreme cases. And that man, man is morally good. And that we have the responsibility to make the world a better place. And that if we do a good enough job of that, if we are good enough, 
then we have an eternity of happiness to look forward to. But my question is, what real meaning and hope do those views give to us? Really not much. But there is a better answer to those questions. There is a better reality. Look at how David answers these two fundamental questions in this psalm. The first question, who is God? He gives us three testimonies to answer this question. There's a testimony about God in verse 1, a testimony of the humble in verse 2, and a testimony of the heavens in verse 3. So what has God revealed about himself? Look again at verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. The first thing we should notice here is that David starts the psalm by using God's real name. When you see the word Lord and it's all capitalized, that is actually the name Yahweh. This is the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. It's a significant name. It's important. It means, I am that I am. Or it can be simply summarized as, I am. That is God's name, is that I am. So what, is, what does God's name reveal about him? It reveals many things. First, it reveals that he is eternal. God never had a beginning. And God will never have an end. God is actually the creator of time. It reveals to us that he is the creator. He's the creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things, everything that is not God is absolutely dependent upon him. He brought all things into being. And he upholds all things even now. God is the absolute reality. There is no reality before God. There is no reality outside of God. His name also tells us that God is independent. God does not depend on anything or anyone for counsel or to make him who he is. His name reveals to us that he is infinite. There's absolutely everything in comparison to God is nothing. It also reveals to us that God is constant. God is the same yesterday, today, and will be the same forever. God cannot and will not be diminished, and he cannot be improved upon. God's name reveals to us that God can do whatever he pleases, and whatever he chooses to do is good and pleasing and right and beautiful. God's name tells us that God is the most important Invaluable reality in the entire universe. God is the great I am. David then goes on and and calls him Lord. He says, Lord, our Lord, which tells us that all authority belongs to God, that he is our supreme ruler, that he is our supreme leader. Which means that God has the final say on all matters. It also means that he has absolutely the right to expect obedience from each one of us. He can demand it from us, for He is Lord. So that's what His name reveals. And then David goes on and he uses these two great terms to describe God even further. We see this again in verse 1. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. So majesty and glory, these words are related to each other. Glory deals with God's being or His essence. It, it, it's, the word is related to weight or to worth saying that God is more weighty than all others, or he is worth infinitely more than anyone or anything else. He is full of honor and splendor and majesty. And majesty is the outward display of his glory. And particularly it's focused on his sovereignty and his power. We, We get a great picture of this in Isaiah 6. 
This is what we read in Isaiah 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So even here we get this picture of of the glory and the majesty of God that his robe fills the entire temple. That the sound of his voice causes the, the thresholds to shake. God is the great I am. God is glorious. He is majestic. And his glory extends above the heavens. His majesty is on display throughout all the earth. You see, David mentions the two extremes of all that God created. He mentions heaven and earth. In other words, there is absolutely nowhere that is not filled with the majesty and glory of God. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, universally is is he present, and everywhere is his name excellent. God worketh ever and everywhere. There is no place where God is not. The miracles of his power await us on all sides. So God's glory, His majesty is on display anywhere and everywhere we look. And he even goes and says God's glory is above the heavens. His glory is infinite. It is incomprehensible. It cannot be contained. All of the power and beauty of creation all around us cannot exhaust God's glory. 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So what do we see here in verse 1? We see that God, He is the great I Am. He is Lord. He is glorious. And His majesty is on display for all to see. Now that begs begs the question, does everybody acknowledge His glory? Does everybody see His majesty? Well, that brings us to verse 2, which reads, Out of the mouth of babes and infants... You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God has enemies. His enemies challenge his glory. They deny his lordship. They try to hide his majesty. And we see that his chief enemy is Satan, who is here called the avenger. And Satan and his followers, they challenge God's glory. And so what is, how, how does God answer this challenge? What is his answer to the avenger, to his enemies. Look at what the verse says. It says, he will answer their challenge through the mouth of babes and infants. So what do we know about babies and infants? Well, they're weak and needy. They are completely dependent upon other people for their food, for their protection, for their provisions. Their mouths cry out regularly, but typically they're crying out because they need something or they want something. Their mouth can be a source of babbling. It can be cute babbling, but it's still babbling. Just for example, our, our, our son Drew, I mean, he's almost two, um, and he's just learning to talk. And if you want to have a great conversation about balls, he is your man. He will talk about balls all day long. He will even point to things like aluminum foil and say, that, you know, say ball, because he knows that can be turned into a ball. Or another way, you know, a thing that Drew does, and, and this is something that's really cute and I'm proud of on one hand, but I think it actually reflects what David is saying in the psalm, is 
Drew loves to go through like our family names. He'll just list off all the people in our family. And he especially does this when we sit down to pray. So we'll sit down and start praying. And if we forget somebody, he lets us know it. Um, and so we'll have to make sure we pray for every single person when we pray. And so in a sense, he is shaming the wise. But the, the point of this is that Drew can only communicate so much. Babies and infants can only communicate so much. And yet God says, you know, he's, he's establishing this dramatic contrast between babies and infants and God's powerful opponents, between them and, and God's chief enemy, Satan. And he's saying that it will be through this weakness, it will be through infants and babies, that God will display his strength over his enemies. Why? It is for his glory. It is so that God alone will be the one that gets the credit. He alone will be victorious. God is bringing victory through our weakness. And there's something even more important that we need to see here. And that is there's a foreshadowing of the cross. Matter of fact, in, in Matthew 21, we see uh, Psalm 8 quoted again. In verses 15 and 16, it says, But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple... Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? This is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and as he's entering Jerusalem, the children are gathering around, and they're crying out praises to God. And this upsets the religious leaders. They're upset by the praise and the glory that he is receiving from these children. And so how does, David, or how does Jesus respond to them? He quotes Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 8 to show them that the children's testimony about him was correct. They, they got it right. Where the religious leaders, who are the ones that should have known better, they're the ones that knew God's word. They should have recognized Jesus for who he was, but they did not give him the glory he was due. They did not understand who he was. And so the children were actually putting to shame the religious leaders. So what can we learn from this? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God uses the foolish and the weak and even the things that are not according to our world to accomplish His great and glorious purposes. And this should be such good news to us. This should be so encouraging because it reminds us that the strength or the effectiveness of the gospel is not based upon us. It is not based upon our wisdom or our strength or our power or our eloquence. And this should give us more freedom to evangelize. So, for example, most people don't evangelize because of fear. They're afraid of rejection or they're afraid that they may not understand how to communicate the gospel well enough. And if that is you, well, then there's good news. You're qualified. Or it gives us more freedom to deal with resistance and to deal with persecution, knowing, just as we see in Psalm 8, that God will still his enemies through weakness and through humility. It gives us greater freedom to express our own weakness, to express our weakness to one another, and to express our weaknesses before God, knowing that um, even when we're ashamed or embarrassed, knowing that we still have great hope. 
So this should be a great encouragement to us. Jared Wilson says this, God builds strong defenses out of human vulnerability and weakness rather than their praise. The recognition of one's own weakness is the starting point for recognizing dependence on the strength of God. So God will shame the wise. This is important for us to always remember because there are times, if we're honest, where God appears weak in our world. There are times where, where the church appears feeble. But we need to remember that in the end, God will use this very weakness. He will use us to defeat his enemies and to accomplish his purpose and to bring glory to his name. Why does he do this? He does it so he alone will receive the glory. His glory and his greatness is displayed through the humble. David then turns his attention to the heavens, and we see this in verse 3. He says, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So most likely David was thinking about this and wrote the psalm when he was out in the fields working as a shepherd, and he was staring into the vast night sky above him, seeing these stars, and, and it just caused him not only to, to, to be amazed at the sight he was seeing, but even more importantly, to recognize the one who created all those things. Because you see, all of creation declares the glory of God. This is one of the great themes that you'll, you'll hear throughout the Psalms. For example, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever just sat at all? at the creation around you. Like for me, one of the special places for me to go is up into the mountains. It's one of the reasons why I was excited to move back to this area. Florida doesn't really have mountains. Uh, and, and, and mountains is a place where I just come to experience and see God and, and to see his work. And it leads me to worship. For Jenny, it's the beach. She loves going to the beach. It's just a special, when she's at the beach, she just meets God in a special way. And she, she just is impressed by that creative work. As a matter of fact, uh, when I met with her dad to ask for his permission to marry his daughter. He made me promise that I would take her to the beach at least once a year. And I reluctantly said, yes, I will take her to the beach every year. But it can be anything. It can be seeing great sights like the Grand Canyon. It can be snorkeling within the coral reefs. Have you ever just stopped and and just been awed by what you see around you? By the creation around us. You see that the beauty and the power all around us, it can take our breaths away. It can lead us to worship because the creation, creation reminds us of the creator, reminds us of who put it all there, of who made it. And it puts on magnificent display the power and the beauty and the glory and the grace of God. And look at what else David says. How did God create all of this? And don't miss this. This is a small point, but it's important. He says he, he, he did it with his fingers. All the creative power of God, all the things around us that are just amazing to see, it was nothing for God to create those things. It magnifies his glory, it magnifies his beauty. You see, all the beauty, all the majesty, all the power that we see all around us in the creative world, when it's compared to God, it is nothing but a speck. And as David is pondering all this, It leads him to a second question. Look at verse 4. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? So when we consider all that God has created, and we consider him, the one who created it, as David is doing here in the first couple of verses, man starts to feel small. 
And that is why he asked this question in verse 4. There's a, a, a great scene at the end of the movie Men in Black. If you've ever seen this movie, it came out many, many years ago. But at the very end of the movie, it ends with Will Smith and his partner. They get into a car, and they start to drive off. And as they start to drive off, the, the camera just starts to pan away from them. And so you see New York City getting smaller and smaller. Then you see North America getting smaller and smaller. Then you see the Earth getting smaller and smaller. And then you start to see planets in the solar system flying by, and the solar system gets smaller and smaller. Then you see the Milky Way galaxy gets smaller and smaller. Then you see other galaxies. And when it's all said and done, you see a marble. And then you see several marbles, and there's a giant alien playing with marbles. Now, obviously, it's meant to be a humorous scene, but it creates this powerful image because as you watch that scene, you just suddenly feel really, really small. And I think that is what the psalm is doing. When we consider God, when we consider everything that God has created, we start to feel very, very small. And David, just to emphasize this even more, he uses, a, instead of using the normal word that you would expect him to use for the word man, he uses a different word. He uses the word enos, which is the Hebrew word that describes the weakness and the frailty of man. It describes the distance between man and God. And despite that, David asks this question. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? The implication is that God is mindful of man. That God does care for you. He's mindful of you, which means he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your pains. He knows your, your, your biggest struggles. He knows your deepest longings. He knows your greatest needs. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is hidden from God. And not only does he know you, but he cares for you. He has affection for you. He has concern for you. He will provide for you. Now, this can be hard to believe. Because when we take the psalm in its entirety, we're talking about the God of the universe. The one who created all things. The one who sustains all things. He is mindful of you. He cares for you. Now, if you're not convinced of this yet, David then goes on and provides us with two pieces of evidence. He talks about the position that God gave man, and he also talks about the purpose that God gave man. So what is the position that God gave man? We see this in verse 5. He says, Yet you've been made a little lower than the heavenly beings, and, crown, and he crowned him with honor, or sorry, he crowned him with glory and honor. So in a sense, God placed man squarely between heaven and earth. The heavenly beings that he's talking about here, these are the angels and the servants of God in heaven. They're glorious, sinless beings um, whose sole purpose is to worship and serve God. And man was made a little lower than them. So what does that mean? It means that we were created and placed here on earth as God's image bearers. We, we see this right at the beginning in Genesis 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So we are created in the image of God. What are the implications of that? Well, first, it doesn't have anything to do with physical form. God is spirit. He is not limited by any form. But what it does mean is that we have an eternal soul, that once we pass from this earth, our soul lives on. It means that we are rational beings, which means that we're able to choose and to act freely. 
Matter of fact, just the fact that David is able to ask these questions in the psalm is, is a sign that we are rational beings. And this is one of the ways that we are separated from the rest of creation. It also means that we were created to be relational beings, and not just relationships with one another, but more specifically, we were created to be in relationship with God himself, to have a special, distinct relationship with God, which once again was different from what the rest of creation has with God. And ultimately, as as God's image bearers, we act as a reminder of his presence and, and as an extension of his authority. God placed us on earth to represent him and to represent his authority. We reflect, we reflect God's glory in a unique and special way that is different from the rest of creation. And then David goes on and he says that God has crowned us. He's crowned us with glory and honor. These are attributes of God. And yet he says that God has given us these attributes, that he has crowned us with glory and honor. Now we need to understand this is not equal glory and not equal honor as God. But once again, this is one of the ways that we are set apart from the rest of creation. We have a glory and an honor that is unique. And this leads us to the second piece of evidence, which is man's purpose. And we see this in verses 6 and eight, six through 8. It says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the sea. We are given dominion over all creation. Now, what doesn't that mean? That doesn't mean that creation is ours to abuse or to do whatever we want to with it. It also doesn't mean that God actually needs us, that God needs us in order to maintain and to take care of his creation. Instead, God has chosen us in his infinite wisdom and grace. He has chosen us to be his stewards over all that he has created. And that's important to understand that we are stewards. What are the implications of that? It means that we represent God over his creation, that that our authority is not of our own. It's given to us by God himself. This mandate to have dominion has been given to us from God. And as we just read, he talks about us being made a little lower than the heavenly beings. And I think that's important because what he did, he doesn't say that we are made a little higher than earthly beings as like the, the top of the line of the earthly beings. But I think he's intentional when he describes us as being made a little lower than the heavenly beings because in a sense he wants to remind us that we were created, in a sense, to have our gaze towards heaven and to be focused on God and to be in relationship with God and, in a sense, to bring heaven down to earth. So our main purpose, man's main purpose, is that God was going to use man to reveal himself and to make himself known and to bring all of creation under his authority. So when we look at this, these psalms so far, what do we see? We see that God is, is majestic, that he is glorious, that all of creation declares that that's true, and that man was set apart from the rest of creation for a particular purpose, which was to have dominion over creation, that we have been given a special and divine purpose. And so if we go back to the beginning, those, those questions I started with, who is man? Who are you? Do you matter? Well, the glorious answer of Psalm 8 is Yes. You do matter. You do have a purpose. But we struggle to believe this at times, don't we? And the reason for that is sin. You see, sin has corrupted our position. It has corrupted our purpose. You know, we are still made in the image of God. But now that image has been tainted by sin. 
we are still given dominion over the earth, but now that dominion is, is full of, of pain and difficulty and hardships and failure due to sin. Romans 1, Paul talks about this. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So man, we were created a little lower than the heavenly beasts. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were created with this perfect relationship with God. They were fully satisfied and fulfilled within that relationship. In a sense, once again, their gaze was on God. Their relationship was with God. But sin came in and messed all of that up. And sin has turned our gaze upward towards God. It's turned us down towards creation. Our focus is on created things rather than the creator. And not only that, but we, because of sin, are becoming more like creation rather than becoming more like the creator whose image we bear. So what can be done about this? Well, there's nothing that we can do to change this. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are condemned and corrupted by sin. But thankfully, what we can't do, God did for us by sending his son. Jesus is the greatest evidence that God is mindful of you. He is the greatest evidence that God cares for you. He sent Jesus to become a man, to take on flesh. He sent Jesus to fulfill our position and to fulfill our purpose on our behalf. Hebrews 2 makes this very clear. Let me read these. This is verses 5 through 9. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God we might taste, that he, he might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. That Jesus is man perfected. The true glory of human nature is found only in Christ. He is the true image bearer of God because he is God. Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. He is the true representative of God to all creation. And Jesus came to do what we failed to do. He came to, to exercise dominion over all creation and to bring all things under his subjection. And how does Jesus do this? Or how did he do this? By humbling himself. He humbled himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself by dying on the cross for sinners such as us. And then he rose victoriously from the grave. Now Hebrews 2.8 makes it clear that this victory, the victory that Jesus has through his resurrection, that it is not fully yet realized. It is true but it is not yet fully realized. And this is one of the reasons why we sometimes struggle to believe this. But have no doubts. When Jesus returns and his work is complete, his dominion and authority will be known by everyone, by all on earth and in heaven. And when he returns, everything, absolutely everything will be in subjection to him. 
So Jesus fulfills Psalm 8 for us. And so if we confess our sins and we acknowledge the fact that we have failed to be the image bearers we were made to be, we have failed to carry out the purpose that God has given us. And if we come to Jesus in faith acknowledging that Jesus and only Jesus could do what we failed to do, that he is our representative, that he is our Savior and Lord, then we will be changed. And through the work of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we will actually become more of what David describes here in Psalm 8. Our gaze will be turned from earth, from created things, back to our Creator. Our relationship with God will be restored. And so it is through Jesus that you matter. It is through Jesus that your purpose is restored. There is another way to illustrate this. There's a, a, just a symbolic or a, a well-known statue in New York City. This is the one on your bulletin. It's a statue of Atlas. Um, this is the statue that's found in front of Rockefeller Center. And if you look at the statues, he's holding what looks like a, just a globe on top of his shoulders. And in many ways, this statue has become symbolic how most of our world views themselves and how they view the world, which is this, that we don't really need God because we can hold up the whole world by our own strength. And we can accomplish whatever we set our minds out to do. The irony of that is that the statue depicts the punishment of Atlas. You see, he was condemned to hold up the sky for all eternity. It was meant to be a huge burden upon his shoulders, a burden that he could not bear. And so if, that is, if you're here this morning and you view the world in that way, if you view the world that there is no God or that if there is a God, he's not really needed, and that you control your own destiny, you can take the world by storm, that will crush you. However, there is another statue in New York City. This statue is found in uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is across from the statue of Atlas. And if you were to go into that cathedral, you'd find this little unassuming statue of a small boy. And if you were to look at that statue closer, you'd realize this is depicting a, a young Jesus, a Jesus as a boy. And if you look even closer, you would see that he is holding in his hand the world. That is true reality. Jesus alone is the one who fully bears the image of God. He alone is the one who has dominion over all things. Psalm 8 points us to Jesus. He is glorious. He is majestic. And the truly amazing thing is that through Jesus and through him alone, we become the people we were meant to be. And we fulfill the purpose that we were called to fulfill. So back to that first question, do you matter? The answer clearly is yes, Through Christ you matter. God is mindful of you. He cares for you. He created you in His image. He crowned you with honor and glory. He gave you a grand and glorious purpose. Yes, sin has messed all that up. But God sent Jesus to become one of us to accomplish what we failed to do. God sent Jesus to redeem sinners like us so that our identity would be restored and our purpose would be restored. So if you ever struggle believing whether or not you matter, if you ever struggle believing that you actually have a purpose, just look to the cross. Jesus loves you. He gave his life for you. And through him, you are becoming more and more of what you were meant to be. Through him, you have a great and glorious purpose that you are enabled through the power of the Spirit to fulfill. And so there's really only one way we can respond to this great news, and that is with worship. And so we see here in Psalm 8 that David ends the psalm the exact same way he began it. 
He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May that be the cry of our hearts as well. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to save sinners such as us. Lord, we thank you that you who are the creator of all things, that you are mindful of us and that you care for us, that you have crowned us with honor and glory, that you have given us dominion over all created things. Lord, we confess that sin has messed us up. We confess that we struggle to believe this. We struggle to to live in the way that we are called to live. But we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to succeed where we have failed and to accomplish what we have failed to accomplish. And that through him, we can once again be your image bearers as we are called to be and we can fulfill the purpose that you've given us. Lord, we pray that he would be exalted. We pray that his majesty would be declared to the ends of the earth. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.